trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hi, I'm John Hollis, and it's a pleasure to welcome you back to Access to Excellence. We're thrilled to be joined today by George Mason University Sport Management Professor Craig Eschrick to talk about the annual national phenomena that is the NCAA Tournament, which is set to begin March 17th and 18th with the first four games in Dayton, Ohio. There are few people better suited to discuss the tournament than my good friend Craig Eschrick. If that name rings a bell to all you sports fans out there, it's for good reason. Craig was the head coach of Georgetown University men's basketball team from 1999 to 2004, and before that, spent 17 years as a Hoyas assistant and four as a Hoyas forward. He has played or coached in 20 NCAA tournaments, coached in two NCAA championship game appearances, and helped Georgetown win the 1984 national title. Craig additionally served as an assistant coach on the 1988 U.S. Olympic men's basketball team that took the bronze medal in Seoul, Korea. He remains involved with college basketball today as a regional television analyst, and I can personally attest that he can still play a pretty mean game himself. Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Well, let's jump right into it. Craig, like you, I know and love college basketball and always look forward to March Madness. I've always said that the first weekend of the NCAA tournament is the best weekend of the year as schools and players previously unknown to most of America dominate the national stage. So what is it about the NCAA tournament that you love most and why does it continue to tug at your heartstrings even now? Well, I think those first two days, that Thursday and Friday, when they cut the field down from 68 or 64 or whatever it is now to 32 and then to to 16, I think those two days are just incredible days of basketball. And I think the reason why it's so popular is, number one, you have the entire country. You have schools from literally all over the United States. Almost every state in the country is represented in some way, shape, or form, either with a player or with a university. And then you have have the opportunity for upsets, which really makes those first two days treacherous for the number one and number two seeds, but also a lot of fun for teams and, and fans that are rooting for the 15 and 16 seeds. Not so much fun if your fans, if your school's the number one seed, though, but we'll get into that later. But the NCAA tournament has it's got become so much more than just entertainment now. It's a multi billion dollar industry fueling TV revenues, spawning tournament pools and offices around the country. How does th- this thing get so big? And is that always good for college basketball? Well, Well, I think there's certainly, because of how much money is involved, that does create some problems for the NCAA and particularly the NCAA enforcement staff because the rewards for winning the national championship, the rewards for winning during the season, the rewards for having a great year as a player are certainly very high. You can become a number one draft pick and make a ton of money. You can be a basketball coach and make millions of dollars as well. So there's definitely financial rewards that are involved. The television revenue has just gone through the roof and every year when you think that the pie can't get any bigger, it continues to get bigger. But I think the reason why is because it truly is a national tournament. It engages everybody around the country that either is a fan from a particular community or an alum or knows a player that's playing on Northern Iowa or somebody on Stephen F. Austin or somebody on Gonzaga. And it creates this national following, particularly the first week of the tournament, that is just incredible. And and like I said before, those first two days, Thursday and Friday, are my two favorite days of the year. Do you still find yourself glued to the TV that first weekend? And you fill out a bracket every year as well. 
I do fill out a bracket, and the funny thing is, the, the bracket I fill out, it's a competition at home between my wife and my two sons, so I don't publicize how poorly I do, but <laughs> usually I finish fourth in that competition, and, you know, it's really fun, and I'm, I'm probably the last person that you should ask who's going to win, because uh, I'm, I'm usually very, very wrong in my picks, and that is uh, typically the case, I think, for a lot of people. The more you know, the less you know in terms of who's going to finish up in the final four. It's, fu- it's funny you mention that because I've been a sports writer, of course, most of my professional career. I've covered five Final Fours. So every year, I have the same thing. I have friends of mine calling me, asking me for <laughs> NCAA tournament advice, entering me in all these pools. I never win. And of course, it's a, much, a source of much amusement to my friends that you could cover college basketball and still, like you said, know so little about it. But uh, looking ahead now, it'll be 35 years. I know this is hard to bring up, and it's also hard to believe it's been 35 years, but it'll be 35 years since AC to Villanova pulled off one of the biggest upsets in NCAA tournament history. Knocking off your reigning champion, National Hoyos, 66-64 in Rupp Arena. As a sports writer, it's always fascinated me that Villanova played the perfect game that night, Craig, as you know. Shot seven, oh, just under 79% from the field for the whole game, 90% in the second half, and still only won by two points. <laughs> any other time, any other place, any other opponent. And the Hoyas, with all your future NBA players like Patrick Ewing, Reggie Williams, David Wingate, who have been the first team since the UCLA dynasty of the 70s to repeat. Do you think much about that game now, and has perspective over time made it a little bit easier to swallow? I don't think about the game that much in, in, unless somebody that's <laughs> impertinent brings it up. But I can remember a few years ago, and it's more than a few years, it's about 15 years ago, I actually did a special for CBS with an assistant coach from Villanova, Steve Lapis, who became the head coach of Villanova. And Steve was on that bench for Villanova. I was on the bench for Georgetown during that game. And we actually watched the game. Seth Davis asked us questions while we were watching the game. And that was the first time I had seen the game in 20-some years. A couple things amazing about the game. Number one, how different college basketball is now with that three-point line and with the shot clock. And short shorts. And the short shorts definitely <laughs> Are, are short. And the other thing is, clearly, in this day and age, you wonder whether we would have been able to put a team together like that with all these one-and-dones, and would Villanova have been able to put a team together? Or St. John's, who was in the Final Four, or Memphis, who was in the Final Four. Keith Lee was in that Final Four. There's no way he would have been in college as long as he was. Ed Pinckney, Patrick Ewing, you know, Reggie. You wonder... You know, would you have been able to assemble that kind of team in the current the current state of college basketball? Sure. Now you mentioned those other teams, but the Big East had three teams in the Final Four that year, which is absolutely unheard of. Yeah, no, it, that was, it was an amazing year. And, and the funny thing is, I think Syracuse came close to making the Final Four that year too. I think they may have lost to Memphis. Mm-hmm. So I think we actually had four teams in the Sweet Sixteen. That, that's incredible. That is incredible. Yeah, but you're also one of the rare people, Craig, to have experienced both sides. I mean, having previously helped the Williams beat that Akeem Olajuwon University of Houston team in the 1984 National Championship game the year before. What do you remember most about that night? What was it like to have experienced such an unforgettable high like that? Well, the Houston game, what I remember most is how well our freshmen played. Michael Graham and Reggie Williams. And the funny thing is, Reggie really didn't play that much in terms of minutes over the course of the year. And Michael was up and down over the course of the year, too. But when that NCAA tournament started, both of those kids played really, really well. And I can remember one time in the Houston game, Hakeem Olajuwon pump faked Patrick, and Patrick jumped up in the air. And Hakeem waited till Patrick came back down and went up to just lay the ball in the basket. Michael Graham came out of nowhere and blocked his shot. 
and so and it's that surprised Akeem and, and certainly surprised everybody else in the gym too but both of those guys were incredibly talented and it was amazing to see how well they played and I want to say I think Reggie was MVP of the final he was, game that's correct and so the other thing I remember about the final four that year was we were down seven to Kentucky and we're playing against a Kentucky team that everybody thought was unbeatable they had Mel Turpin and Bowie and Skywalker as their front line and they said this was the best front line that was ever assembled we're down seven at halftime and everybody on press row was already writing the final <laughs> you know uh, obituary and we're gone and Kentucky dominated Georgetown and then all of a sudden we put on this full court press and I can remember Gene Smith picking up their point guard full court and Kentucky had trouble scoring and literally I don't know if they scored the first 15 minutes of that second half it was one of the greatest wow. defensive displays that you ever want to see and we ended up beating Kentucky and obviously ended up beating Houston also but the Kentucky game was probably more much more dramatic for us than the Houston game I still remember that Sports Illustrated cover with Michael Graham on the on the cover it's pretty imposing yes yes <laughs> You know, just mentioning some of these names reminds me of some of the great players you had the pleasure of coaching over the years. And of course, we mentioned Patrick Ewing, but there's also Alonzo Mourning, Dikembe Mutombo, and Allen Iverson, just to name a few. Not to mention the guys you coached in the Olympics. What's it been like working with such transcendent talents like that? Well, it, it was an incredible honor, and it was a lot of fun to be able to work with all four of those guys. You know, all four first-round draft choices. And I, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, all four of them are in the Hall of Fame now, right? That's correct. Because I think Allen was just inducted very recently. And, you know, Allen was probably the most recent player. And I can just remember so many games where the game would be going back and forth. We would be playing a really tough team in the Big East. And then Allen would make three plays on defense and two plays on offense. And all of a sudden the game's over. And for somebody that small, and, you know, fans just, you, you walk by Allen in the hallway, you walk by Allen, or you're sitting next to him in class, you walk by him in the mall, and you say, there's no way that's Allen Iverson. No way. But he was one of the most incredible athletes, and I put him in the same category as Patrick Ewing. People don't remember how athletic Patrick was when he was in college, and the backward dunk was, was something he did every game. He'd come out of nowhere to block shots. He could run the floor, and Allen was as athletic as Patrick in a different way. He literally could change a game against top quality opponents by three or four plays. And so that made you a much better coach. <laughs> of course. I just remember every kid in America going out working that crossover when they saw Allen Iverson. <laughs> nobody could do a crossover. They, they all tried to imitate it, but nobody could do a crossover like Allen. And I'm sure you taught him that one, right? I did. I did. <laughs> In the years since those heady days for the Warriors, we've seen fewer dominant teams, Craig, and a lot more parity throughout college basketball. This year alone, we've seen a whole bunch of teams sitting at number one in the AP poll. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think some of it is the attractiveness of the sport. I think basketball is now on par with soccer in terms of being one of the most popular sports in the world, not just in the United States. So you have more people playing the sport. Coaching has gotten better. The three-point line, I think a lot of people talk about the fact that skills have deteriorated, and I'm one of those people that t completely disagree. I think kids have gotten better. I think they're mm -hmm. much better dribblers. They're much better athletes. They're much stronger. They're better shooters. The only skill that I think hasn't improved at that level is passing. The skill of passing I, I don't think is appreciated by enough people, but the rest of the skills in basketball and the strength of the players has gotten much better. And so you'll have a kid that grows up in Iowa or a kid that grows up in Louisiana or a kid that grows up in North Dakota – 
that can develop his skills and you know the AAU circuit you can go out and play against the best in the country while you're still in high school and that's created players literally all over the country not just in the big population areas like LA, New York, Houston, DC or Philadelphia. You know, when I was growing up that's where the best players were, but I think that's changed because of the popularity of the sport. Early departures for the NBA are clearly another reason of so many talented and experienced players often give way to younger players who have less experience and quite honestly less prepared for the pressure and the cauldron that is the NCAA tournament. As a result, the dynamic, as you've seen, has opened the door for a lot of veteran mid-major teams with experienced guards like George Mason, uh, VCU, and Butler to make those respective Final Four runs. What is the improbable success of these programs meant to college basketball, and can we possibly expect to see more of it in the future? I think you will see more of it, John, because I think the NCAA and the NBA, they're going to tinker with the rules again. And you may see some changes in relation to one and done and who's allowed to leave and who's not allowed to leave. You know, maybe a high school player can declare for the NBA, but you have to go stay in college for two or three years or whatever the rule could be in the future, but I think that you have teams like VCU, teams like George Mason, teams like a Northern Iowa, a Butler, that can put together kids that are in school for three, four years, and they develop a chemistry, a cohesion that you can't develop if all your best players are leaving after one year. And with weight programs and with the way the rules are and you can practice year-round and you, you have some great coaches in college basketball, there are some people that can develop very, very good teams. The rules also can play zone in college. You can collapse on people that are hurting you defensively. So the rules are conducive to developing a strategy against some teams with one or two really good players also. You were vice president for athletic relations for CBS College Sports in 2006. What did you think of Mason's run of the Final Four? I'm going to tell you a funny thing about that. The thing that I remember about Mason was the thing that most people aren't going to even know about is Mason ended up calling us up because we were in charge of their website. And they ended up calling, calling us up because they had had little traffic on their website in terms of e-commerce before this run. And all of a sudden, they make the Final <laughs> Four, and there are incredible amounts of requests for George Mason hats and gear. And we had to change, we had to rip up their contract. They ask us, can you rip up the contract and develop a more robust website because things are, are flying off the shelves and we have an opportunity to make you know a, a, an awful lot more money. And so I think they ended up, they made more money off of their website during that run than they had in a couple of years before that because of the fact they had no idea that there was that much interest <laughs> nationally. So that's what I remember most about it. And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm from, I've lived in this area my entire life, so even though I went to Georgetown and coached at Georgetown, I was really happy for those players, happy for Jim Laranega, happy for Mason, and also happy for college basketball because, you know, and I hate to bring this up, but stories like George <laughs> Mason, VCU, and UMBC, those stories make that tournament worth watching. Unless you're a Virginia fan. Yes, it wasn't yes. worth Well, for me I'm, not, I'm not feeling sorry for anybody from Virginia because you guys have <laughs> celebrated that win more times, more than 365 days out of the year you keep celebrating that, that win you had a year ago. Was it a year ago or two It was a year ago. ago. It'll be a year ago it's next hard, month. It's hard to believe. Yeah. Well, it be, it's expected that the NBA is soon going to drop the current player age requirement of 19, meaning players will, again, be allowed to jump into the league directly out of high school properly. Is that a good thing? And will college basketball thrive or suffer as a result? It, if... If I was the basketball czar, my rule would be the baseball rule. And the baseball rule is, in high school, if you want to go play professionally, you can. I'd make a requirement that you have to graduate from high school. 
I would say you have to graduate from high school. Once you graduate from a high school or you get a GED, you're eligible for the draft. If you decide to go to college, I would say you got to be in college for three years before you're eligible again. That would be my rule. I'm sure it's not going to happen. I'm sure the NBA Players Association is not going to agree to that. But to me, that's the best rule for the sport. That's the best rule for colleges. That's the best rule for college basketball. And that's the best rule for the NBA, too. Why would the NBA Players Association be against it? Well, I think the NBA Players Association would say that we're not giving enough freedom to the players. They represent the players. And there have been many players that have been very active in the line that anybody should be able to go pro at any time without any consideration for universities and colleges around the country and the ability to run an athletic program and also the ability for college basketball. You still want college basketball to thrive if you're part of college basketball. The NFL PA, they they don't care about college basketball. Their focus are the players and their members. I care about college basketball. I care about the members (laughs) of the NFL PA too. And I think this is a rule that would help both. I think kids would be more prepared to enter a profession, the NBA is a profession just like the practice of law. And if you want to prepare people for a profession and permit people to have an opportunity for success, you're better off apprenticing at the college basketball level for that profession than jumping right in. And that's what they never talk about is all the kids that have dropped out of school, never go back to school, never graduate, that thought they could play in the NBA when they were too young. How do you say no to a kid, though? I I remember a kid I covered at Florida, Donnell Harvey. Played one year at Florida. Played less than 20 minutes a game for Billy Donovan and the Gators. Jumped to the NBA. Was a first-round draft pick. I went to his house. He he was in some tough economic conditions. He and his brothers were living with their grandmother. How do you tell a kid no? Well, my argument for that, John, is a kid like that needs college more than the kid that that hasn't had the hardships. You wouldn't let Donnell Harvey operate on you as a doctor, (laughs) and you wouldn't let him represent you in a court of law. And both of those professions, the legal profession and the medical profession, have standards of practice. Why can't the NBA and the NFL Players Association have standards of practice which would in my opinion, benefit the league. The other thing is all these people that are coming in that are 18, 19 years old, if I was the NFLPA, they're taking jobs away from guys that have been in the league for 10 years. So are you really representing your your Players Association by permitting these people to come in and take away jobs for people that have been in the league and have represented the league? The league is a business entity, and that business entity is only going to grow if talented people that can add to the pie are permitted to enter the profession. If you have people that are not prepared for that profession, it's not going to help grow that business. Well, finally, Craig, you've kept up with college basketball. What teams could we potentially see cutting down the nets in the ATL next month? Well, John, I hate to say this, but (laughs) because of some of the work I do as a color commentator, really the only two leagues I'm an expert on right now are the A-10 and the Patriot League. So I can tell you who the best teams are in those two leagues, but until I finish doing some of this work that I've been doing for both those leagues for the last seven, eight years, I really don't start watching other teams. You know, I know Gonzaga's good. I watched the Kansas-Baylor game the other day. Both those teams look good. Seen West Virginia play. West Virginia looks, looks pretty good. So there are definitely some good teams across the country, but I can't give you. Kansas and Baylor 
right. are really good. What about Dayton? They were here the other uh, night. Dayton, I saw them. I think they're a great team. I, I think Dayton is really good. They got one of the best players in the country in Obi Toppin. I think Anthony Grant's done a great job with that team. They're not a one-man team. They got some other guys that are good. So I think Dayton Dayton has a chance to make the Final Four. I think so too. They get great guard playing. I think this year, John, I think the A-10 is going to get more teams in the league. A lot more, not the league, more teams in the tournament than they did last year. I think there's a lot more NCAA tournament worthy teams this year than there were last year. Dayton, Richmond, and who else? Uh, Dayton, Richmond, I would say Rhode Island. I think Davidson may get some consideration. I think that Duquesne has had a really good year. I think St. Louis has had a really good year. All right. Well, Craig, thank you very much. That's going to wrap things up here at Access to Excellence. We appreciate your time and, of course, your valuable insights, Craig, and we want to wish you well and everything ahead. I'm John Hollis, and thanks for joining us. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.